Would you turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Exodus chapter 2? Exodus chapter 2 this morning, we'll be looking at verses 11 through 25, the rest of the chapter. I'll read the whole thing. Exodus chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. Give our attention to the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and he thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and he saved them and he watered their flock for them. When they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, how is it that you have come home so soon today? And they said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. The grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Let's pray. Oh God, we do thank you for this, your word. Thank you for giving it to us and preserving it that we might have it this morning. And we ask, oh God, that you would Grant to us spiritual understanding. Open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things. Father, we pray that by the ministry of your spirit, you would work in us and through us. Grant us to be more like Jesus. Encourage us where we're discouraged. Correct us where we need to be corrected. Father, help us to stand for you. Father, I pray that you would help me, keep me from error. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable unto you, O God. You are my rock and my redeemer. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. There was a poem of sorts circulating the internet years ago, and it was titled, In Whose Hands? I've updated it slightly to share with you this morning. A basketball in my hands is worth about 
A basketball in LeBron James's hands is worth about $75 million. It depends on whose hands it's in. A baseball in my hands is worth about $8. A baseball in Max Scherzer's hands is worth about $40 million. It depends on whose hands it's in. A tennis racket in my hands is worth about $60. A tennis racket in Venus Williams's hands is worth about $50 million. It depends on whose hands it's in. A rod in my hand might keep away a wild animal, might. A rod in Moses' hands will part a mighty sea. It depends on whose hands it's in. A slingshot in my hand is merely a kid's toy. A slingshot in David's hand will take down a mighty giant. It depends whose hands it's in. Two fish and five loaves of bread in my hands is a couple of fish sandwiches. Two fish and five loaves of bread in Jesus' hands will feed thousands of people. It depends on whose hands it's in. Nails in my hands might produce a birdhouse. Nails in Jesus' hands certainly brings eternal salvation to his people. It depends on whose hands it's in. My life in my hands has brought me all kinds of trouble. My life in God's hands, well, that is proven to be priceless. It really does depend on whose hands it's in. Our journey to freedom series through the book of Exodus continues this morning by looking at the consequences that Moses faces as he takes his life and his calling into his very own hands. We've already read together here chapter 2, 11 through 25, but before we dive into its exposition, I want us to turn to a passage in the New Testament, a passage that helps us to understand this text even better. If you turn over to Acts chapter 7, you'll see that Stephen, Acts chapter 7, You'll see that Stephen is delivering a sermon before a council of religious leaders. And as he speaks, he gives a long summary, a summary history of the people of Israel. Important for us this morning is what he says about Moses in chapter 7, verses 17 through 29. So let's read that together. And I'll remind you that the best interpreter of the Old Testament is indeed the New Testament. So Acts chapter 7, verses 17 through 29. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt, until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight, and he was brought up for three months in his father's house, and when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel, And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. 
he supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. With this background in mind, with these details that fill in some blanks and questions that we might have, taking that with the primary text before us from Exodus 2, I want us to consider, first of all this morning, the privilege of Moses. The privilege of Moses. If you're taking notes, that's going to be our first of three points this morning. The privilege of Moses. We learn from Stephen that the events that we've read in Exodus first happened when Moses was 40 years old. 40 years old. And in those 40 years, Moses came to enjoy many privileges. I'll list some. First, Moses had enjoyed the privilege of providential care. You'll remember from last week, and we just read it again, that Moses had been rescued. He'd been rescued from infanticide when his mother, Jochebed, placed him in a basket, uh, literally in an ark in the Nile River, and he was subsequently taken in by Pharaoh's daughter. You see, when Moses had no capacity to defend or to care for himself, God orchestrated the actions of others to make sure he survived. God had providentially cared for Moses in a mighty way. He providentially cares for all of us. Here we see a mighty way he did that for Moses. Second, Moses had enjoyed the many privileges of royalty. He was raised as a prince, a prince of Egypt. There's not a time that Moses would have found himself wanting Everything he needed and everything he wanted was right at his fingertips. Living in the house of the most mighty man in the world. Unlike his fellow Israelites, Moses never lived as a servant. Rather, think about this, he had others constantly serving him. Always being served. His servants were at his beck and call. Third, Moses had enjoyed the privilege of a first-class education. Moses had received religious instruction from his mother, particularly at the young age. Remember, she was the one who ended up nursing him, and in that culture, it would have been until about four or five years old that she would have had him under her care. Think about that. There he learned of God and God's ways. He heard of the promises that God had made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and how God had provided through Joseph. Think about that. He heard that. But notice that he also received an education that Stephen calls an education in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. He got the best secular education of the day as well. As a result, Stephen tells us that he was powerful in both speech and action. Remember that in a couple of weeks. Some of you know. Powerful in speech and in action. Moses had the privilege of learning both godly and worldly knowledge. Fourth, and the last one I'll bring up, 
Moses had been blessed with the privilege of a divine calling. Moses is privileged with a divine calling. He was called, we know now, to be the mediator of the old covenant and the one who would deliver God's people out of Egypt. Even though he was not yet aware of the full scope of this calling here at 40 years old, that's a a good reminder for us, right? We don't always know everything. We think we do at a young age. He doesn't know it all here at 40 years old. He's not aware of the full scope of it. We see in Exodus 2.11, though, that he's identifying with his people. He knows that the Hebrews are his people. Look what it says. Where does he go out in 2.11? He goes out to his people. Stephen's sermon. Back in Acts 7, verse 25, he says that Moses had some idea that God would use him to one day rescue his people. I wrestled with that this week. I wrestled with that. It's not as clear here in Exodus 2, but Stephen, inspired by the Holy Spirit, written for us in Holy Scripture, tells us this so we know it to be true. It's God's word. Scripture makes it clear that Moses certainly had the privilege of being called by God to a great task, even if he didn't know exactly what that entailed. He knew he was called to his people. He may not fully understand that call in these years here, but he had some idea of it. And I'm thankful that we know that. But what happens? What happens when we have all kinds of privilege? What happens when we have this sort of privilege? What can it lead to? Destructive, self-sufficient pride. We hear stories like Moses's all the time, don't we? It's very common to hear of people. We tend to hear about it with young people, but it's all people who grow up surrounded by wealth and surrounded by opportunity, and they let this privilege lead to a festering, rampant pride. And often, often those seeds of pride yield a harvest. And that harvest is most of the time personal destruction. This brings us now to our second point this morning, the pride of Moses. We've seen the privilege of Moses. Now let's look at the pride of Moses. Verses 11 through 14, which we read, detail for us how pride leads to a destructive fall in Moses' life. In the text, you find Moses going out one day, and he looks upon his people. He looks upon the burdens of his people. And what does he see? What does he see? He sees a Hebrew being beaten by an Egyptian. How does he respond? He strikes down the Egyptian. He strikes him down. He kills him. And then he hides his body in the sand. He kills him and he hides his body in the sand. At first glance, Moses' actions here seem to be motivated by sympathy for his people, right? It's caused maybe by an impulsive heat of the moment decision. I see someone being beaten. I see someone lesser being beaten by someone more. I need to step in and defend That's okay, but notice what he does. He kills him, and he hides the body. He is stepping in. He does have sympathy, it appears, for his people. 
But if you look even closer at the text, you'll see that what motivated him was actually self-sufficiency and pride. He doesn't just take matters of justice into his own hands here, but I want you to look at the very first words of verse 12. Remember who the author of this is. It's Moses. As he gives his account, look what he says. He looked this way and that. He looked this way and that. He looks around. See, what Moses doesn't know at this point, what he doesn't know is that God has a plan to deliver his people. And that plan will be about bringing glory to his own name. That plan will be about using the weakness of man to display his own sovereign strength and greatness. So the very fact that Moses looks around before killing the Egyptian shows what Moses did know deep down inside, though. He knew the entire act was shameful. Hey, no one's looking. He didn't just act in the heat of the moment. He looked around. Hey, no one's looking, so I'm going to rescue my people with my own power and my own strength. Bam, he's dead. And then put an exclamation point on this. He hides the body. He hides the body. Motivated by fear, he hides the body. He knows what he did was wrong, very wrong. Listen, people go to great lengths to hide, to hide what they know is wrong. We do it with sin all the time. We hide, we hide. The bottom line, whenever we try and replace God's timetable with our own, which Stephen helps us to understand, when we do that, we're acting in a prideful manner. We struggle with this all the time as Christians, don't we? It's very easy for us to convince ourselves that God's not moving fast enough or that his methods of doing things are inefficient. We want to accomplish our goals in our own timing and in our own way, so we take matters into our own hands and end up declaring that we alone are sovereign. We're sovereign over ourselves. Listen, it's not wrong for Moses to stand up for the weaker. It's not wrong for self-defense. It's not wrong to help in a time like this. The way he did it and the result of it and how he hid it is wrong. He's trying to rescue on his own timetable. And what usually comes with such self-sufficient pride? We've already said in fact, you can look at Proverbs 16, 18, it makes it clear. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Is this not what happens to Moses? We read it. What happens in verse 13 and 14? He loses all credibility with his own people. He looked this way and that. He hid the body, but he neglected the person that he rescued. Surely he's went and told everyone because what happens? He tries to intervene in a dispute. And they don't welcome his help, do they? They essentially say to him, and I'm paraphrasing, pretending maybe we're on the playground, who made you the boss of us? Who made you boss? Are you gonna kill us too? And then what happens in verse 15? Pharaoh hears of it. Pharaoh hears of it, and now what does he wanna do? 
wants to kill Moses. Moses might have felt safe when he looked this way or that, but his sin found him out. And listen, sin will find you out. And what's he gonna do now? He's gonna run for his life. Look at the end of verse 15. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and he stayed in the land of Midian and he sat down by a well. It'll become very key in a moment. He sat down by a well. The man of privilege, because of his self-sufficient pride, has now become a man on the run. Most of you know the rest of the story, but let's put ourselves here. And let's not think that Moses' story is over. Because it's not. God doesn't give up so easily on his people, does he? When we take our lives into our own hands, we may often bring upon ourselves all types of troubles and problems. But listen, because our lives are never truly out of God's hands, God has this way, surprises us, but it shouldn't. He has this way of working in and through those troubles and those problems to prepare us for what he's always meant for us to do. This brings us to our third point this morning, the preparation of Moses, the preparation of Moses. The child of privilege is now a foreigner. He's a failure and he's a fugitive in the land of Midian. The pomp and circumstance of Egypt have been replaced with the lowly and lonely nomadic life of those in Midian. If you were Moses, put yourself in his sandals for a moment. What would you think? Would you think that all was lost? All is over? If you knew that you were going to spend the next 40 years in this place, which we know from scripture that he does, 40 years, 40 years, it's 80 when he goes back. You were gonna spend the next 40 years in that place. You'd be pretty worried about how things were going to go, wouldn't you? You'd be pretty concerned. But what if you knew Moses is writing from this perspective. What if you knew that God was going to take this time and like the potter with the clay, he was gonna use this time to form and fashion you into just the person he wants you to be? What if he knew that? What if he was gonna work characteristics of leadership into Moses so that Moses could be the leader that God wants him to be? What if God brought you brought Moses to the desert to teach empathy. Remember, Moses had identified with the ethnicity of his people back in Egypt, but do you know what he hadn't identified with yet? He hadn't yet identified with what it was like to actually be a Hebrew. In fact, these women that he rescues don't even know that he's a Hebrew. They tell their dad, We were saved by an Egyptian. He doesn't even know what it's like to be a Hebrew. He's likely clean shaven with shorter hair, maybe something identifying the family of Pharaoh. He didn't look anything like a Hebrew. He looks like an Egyptian. Did he walk like an Egyptian? Maybe. Just making sure you're awake. All right. Moses knew nothing of the slavery of his people. He knew nothing of the suffering of his people. 
But now he had been taken from his land and placed in a strange land among strange people. Sound familiar? You see, by bringing Moses to Midian, God was taking his ethnic identity and transforming it into ethnic empathy. He wanted him to more than identify. He wanted him to have compassion and be empathetic. God was giving him a heart for his people. Hebrews 11, 24 through 26, you can look there later. It makes that clear for us that he considered the reproach from Egypt, right? He considered that as nothing compared to identifying with his people. And the author of Hebrews says identifying with Christ. He knew that is how he should identify. Moses is learning to identify with his people in Midian. But there's even more. There's even more for Moses, though. He's got some other lessons to learn. What if God brought him to the desert to teach him not just empathy, but also humility? What if God wanted to humble him? You see, before Midian, Moses was full of himself, but now in Midian, he's learning to empty himself. <laughs> and this is where John Currid, our commentator I've referred to before, we'll call it again, delicious irony. He learns to empty himself where? At a well, at a place made for filling. That's where he empties himself. Verses 16 and 17 of Exodus 2 recount for us what happens. Uh, seven daughters of a priest, a Midian priest named Ruel, who's also called Jethro, right? Uh, Ruel, uh, these seven daughters had come to this very well where Moses uh, rested and they were being harassed by some local shepherds. When Moses saw this, at first you're like, uh-oh, <laughs> here it comes, right? When Moses sees this, he, he gets up and he rescues them. It just says he came to the rescue. They, they fled. Now think about this. The women he assisted were not Hebrews, and yet he helped them without any violence. And not only did he rescue them, but look at what verse 17 says. He watered their flocks for them. He watered their flocks for them. This man of privilege had just left Egypt where he was used to being served by others. He had probably never engaged in anything resembling work or hard work in all of his life. And now he finds himself taking the form, the role of a servant, emptying himself so that not just others may have their fill, but so that their animals might have their fill. What happened in Egypt has an effect on Moses. In fact, it may have broken him, but now God is at work to do what he does, to build him up. God is at work building him up to form and fashion him into the man, into the leader, into the deliverer he wants him to be. And to do so, God is teaching him valuable traits needed by every leader, yes, every Christian, but every leader called to deliver Right, called to be such a thing as a deliverer for his people. God is teaching Moses empathy and humility. And as we return to this story next week and go into the beginning of chapter three, we'll very see, excuse me, we'll see very clearly that Moses' time in Midian is not wasted time. It's not wasted. 40 years. His time is redeemed by God so that he can prepare his servant. God is at work. These traits that Moses has learned are actually lessons that all Christians 
are called to learn. You probably already have something in your mind. Philippians chapter 2, if you want, you can turn over there with me. Philippians chapter 2, I'll just read verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. You know, like Moses, you and I are called to move the focus off of ourselves, right? And to consider the lives and the circumstances, the needs and the interests of others. Consider others as more important than yourselves. Romans 12, 10, outdo showing honor to one another. In humility and in empathy, we're called to lay aside privilege, to lay aside pride. For what? For the sake of serving others. And that's super easy, right? Being last is super easy, right? Everyone says, yeah, I'm supposed to say yes, so I'll say yes. No, it's hard. It's really hard to do this. It's hard, but praise God. We're not left to accomplish it on our own. Because how does Philippians chapter two continue? God sends his deliverer, the son of privilege, the son who knew no pride, the son who emptied himself and considered others as more important and took on our human nature. And he delivered us from all our sins and all of our sorrows by taking those sins and sorrows upon himself. And by his grace and by his strength, we're called to do this. Paul begins by saying, have this mind amongst yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. Be like Jesus. Live like Jesus. Love like Jesus. Serve like Jesus. Not in your own strength, but in the strength that he provides. Well, there's another story going on here, and this is important to help us as we segue into the rest of this book. Look at chapter 2, verse 23. It tells us that during the years of Moses' preparation, the people of Israel, those living in bondage in Egypt, go through some changes. The Pharaoh dies. A new Pharaoh comes up. But what, what hasn't changed? They're still slaves. Moses is out at the school of hard knocks. He's getting another education in life. And the people he wants to identify with, that he does identify with, are still living in bondage and crying out to be rescued from their slavery. And I'm telling you, what follows in verses 24 and 25 are some of the sweetest and most comforting words we can read in all of Scripture. And I'm going to summarize it just by using the four verbs found there. God heard their groaning. God heard them. God remembered his covenant. God remembered. God saw the people. God saw them. And God knew. He knew. He knew. 
So let me ask you this. In whose hands have you placed your life? In whose hands have you placed your life? We've seen Moses do what most of us are so prone to do, to take matters into our own hands and and seek to do things in our own time and in our own way. And and if you're like me, you've learned, and like Moses, that that often leads to trouble, uh, immense trouble, sometimes destructive trouble. But God, but God is still faithful He still redeems it for our good and his glory as we'll see in the life of Moses. He uses those things to mold and fashion us into the people he longs for us to be. But I love the juxtaposition here of Moses and his wrestling and the very simple groaning of God's people, of just crying out to God, not taking matters into their own hands. Have you ever wondered why didn't they just revolt? If there's so many of them and they're so strong and mighty, why don't they just rise up? They groaned. They cried out to God. Imagine for a moment what it would be like if we were to embrace our helplessness, embrace our absolute dependence upon God. Imagine if we could bring ourselves to do what the people of Israel do here at the end of chapter two. Imagine instead of taking everything into our own hands, uh, imagine if we were to lift our wants and our needs and our hurts and our troubles up to the Lord and, and what I think is presented here is a wave upon wave upon wave of earnest prayer and groaning. What would happen? We don't know for sure, do we? We don't know how the outcome will go. They didn't know. We know because we know the story, right? You don't always know how God's gonna work and what he's gonna do. But here's what you can know. You can know what the Bible tells you. God knows. God knows you and your circumstances. How about this? God hears you. You ever get tired of praying? Ever get tired? I mean, how many times do you find yourself earthly saying, I've asked you to do it 10 times, I might as well just do it myself. If you've been to my house, you hear me say that a lot. What if we instead said, I can't do this. I'm not gonna take it into my own hands. I'm gonna cry out to you, oh God. He hears, he remembers. What does he forget? He forgets our sins, but he remembers his covenant. He remembers his promises and he works, he works. God works on our behalf, doesn't he? God works. He's done so before, hasn't he? We're gonna see in coming weeks that that God is gonna work mightily and he's gonna use Moses to rescue his people from Egypt. But I hope you know that God didn't stop working the Exodus. God kept working the Exodus, pointed to a greater Exodus when Jesus would come and rescue us from our sins. So I call you this morning, I call myself to stop trying to put my own life in my own hands and entrust myself to the eternally faithful God who loves you, loves me more than I can ever imagine. I call you to commit your very life into his hands. Let go of any selfish pride and any sin and let the only thing that we, that you and I hold on our very hands is the one who saved us. Think about what we just sang some 30 minutes ago, nothing in my hand I bring. 
Simply to the cross I cling. Hold on to Jesus. Amen and amen. Would you get your bulletin out?